So good evening. Uh, I, I'm Tim O'Shea, the, the, the principal of the university. <clears throat> A tremendous uh, pleasure to welcome you to this lecture in the uh, Medical Detectives uh, lecture series. How many of you have been to, to these lectures before? All right. So I don't need to say very much about, you know, University of Edinburgh has all sorts of things. It has the founder of geology and it has uh, the world's most famous imaginary medical detective in Sherlock Holmes, modelled, as you will all know, uh, on, on Joseph Bell, uh, in most part. Bell being the one who did the deduction, but modelled in part on Prof Sir Robert Christensen, who, like Holmes, experimented with dangerous drugs, not just on himself, on his students, uh, too. Um, and then we also have Sir Henry Littlejohn, who was Edinburgh's first medical officer of health and explained to uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, about things like fingerprinting and different ways of apprehending criminals. And it's sort of, Sherlock Holmes is a bit annoying because there's all this rubbish about Baker Street. He's clearly Scottish. And we know he's Scottish because he has a deerstalker hat. And we know he's Scottish because he was in, invented from round here. But anyway, we're so... So Edinburgh has this wonderful tradition in um, forensic medicine, um, has um, uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, and tonight, instead of Sherlock Holmes, uh, we have Professor Brian Walker, uh, who will be addressing you. Um, an immensely distinguished uh, medical scientist, uh, trained in Glasgow and Edinburgh, um, developed a medical career, research career, with the Medical Research Council and the British uh, Heart Foundation, uh, became Professor of Endocrinology here um, 11 years ago. He's currently head of the university's 180-strong um, British Heart Foundation Centre for Cardiovascular Science at the Queen's Medical Research Institute. <clears throat> Very active in education and training, notably as an editor of the world-famous Edinburgh-based textbook Davidson's Principles and Practice, and as a supervisor of 35 past and present PhD students. That's a lot. I've supervised quite a lot, but nowhere near, near 35. Uh, so, uh, Professor Brian Walker <coughs> will be talking to you tonight, tonight on the theme, Stress Hormones and Heart Disease, The Clue is in a Mixed-Up Colorist. Brian. Well, thanks very much indeed, Sir Tim, and ladies and gentlemen, it's great to see so many of you here. I'm actually astonished by how many of you regularly turn up this series, and I, I hope I live up to its billing. Um, I think my goal tonight is to get across to you, particularly for those of you who are younger and have your potential careers in this area ahead of you, to get across some feeling for what it's like to, to pursue a, a path of a, of a detection in, in medical science. And I'm going to do that by trying to explain to you what we get up to in the Center for Cardiovascular Science. There is a group of us, as, as Sir Tim said, it's about 180 strong, who live in the top floor of the Queen's Medical Research Institute out at Little France, beside the Royal Infirmary. And our overall mission is to try to find better ways to prevent and to treat cardiovascular disease. That's a big agenda, and I'll try to make that more specific as I go through this talk. The reason that we're interested in cardiovascular disease is because it is a modern-day serial killer on a mega scale. Cardiovascular disease, uh, most of it, uh, really is a terminology to describe damage to blood vessels that occurs through a process called atherogenesis, where there's formation of these cholesterol-laden plaques within the blood vessels, within the arteries, 
which cause the blood vessels to narrow and to limit the supply of oxygen to tissues. And as those plaques develop, they may then develop on top of them a thrombosis or a clot which blocks off the artery and causes a complete blockage in this blood supply and damage to the tissue beyond. And when that damage occurs in the heart, that's called infarction and it's called a heart attack, a myocardial infarction. It's extremely common. And I'm sad to say that uh, as we stand today, probably one in three of us in this room will succumb one day to cardiovascular disease, and many of us to coronary heart disease, to blockages of the coronary artery and to myocardial infarction. That has improved over recent decades, but it's still one of the commonest killers in society. So there is a big challenge for us in improving matters. When we think how to improve matters, I guess the obvious starting point is to think about, well, who gets cardiovascular disease? What are their characteristics? And does that help us to predict how we could intervene uh, to break a chain of events that leads to disease? So I think most of you would be able to come up with ideas about who gets cardiovascular disease. Um, here's a list of the sort of big five. Uh, smoking is top of the list, and I'm delighted to say that many of the things that have happened to smoking habits and to the control of smoking and public health policy have, are probably responsible for reducing the risks of cardiovascular disease in recent decades, but we're still left with a big problem. The remaining problem is explained in a good part by the presence of these risk factors. Obesity, which as you will all know is increasing in a, in a substantial way, particularly in Scotland, Abnormal lipid levels, particularly high cholesterol, high blood glucose levels, that's diabetes, and high blood pressure, that's uh, hypertension. And taken together, that cluster, which tends to occur in the same people within the community, we call that something, we call it the metabolic syndrome. And there is worldwide an enormous effort in trying to understand the processes that underlie the metabolic syndrome to try and get a handle on how we could reduce cardiovascular risk. Funnily enough, though, when I was a medical student in this very room, we never talked about the metabolic syndrome. We never talked about these sorts of cardiovascular risk factors very much at all. Uh, what I was taught was that cardiovascular disease was a disease of stress, and that the people who would get it are those who um, uh, were under terribly stressful lifestyles. And the picture that was painted was of the high-pressure businessman, the guy at the top of his game who uh, is living a, a highly pressurized life, making important and uh, very valuable decisions day in, day out. And I can see Sir Timothy now looking very worried about this, because this, <laughs> this might be the, the, exactly the profile of the leading figure who might get cardiovascular disease. That's what we were taught. In fact, there was then some research, and I think this is a message for youngsters. You have to be very careful about what you're taught, because the research might not prove that it's correct. And the research that's been done since doesn't support that notion at all. Because Sir Michael Marmot and his colleagues did a fantastic set of studies in, the, in Whitehall amongst the civil service population. So they collected all sorts of people who worked for the civil service. And the great thing about them is they're all on a series of defined pay scales. So you can tell where people stand in society, if you like, on the basis of their civil service grade. And then they measured all sorts of things about their stress and what they were subjected to. And what this graph shows is that it's not the people at the top of the tree who are on the left here who get cardiovascular disease. It's the people at the bottom. It's the people who are under stress because their boss is putting them under ridiculous demands. And it's not the guy shouting down this megaphone, however stressed he might look, who is at risk of cardiovascular disease. It's the guy who's having to listen, who has lost his locus of control, is what they describe that as.
Okay, so now we need to try and think about what is it about that pattern of stress, the, the less controlled person, the person who's under constant pressure, that might lead to cardiovascular disease. And if we could find that out, could we find some clues to breaking the chain of events that leads to disease? And I'm going to show you throughout this lecture a kind of combination of things. I want to show you partly what is good old-fashioned deductive reasoning that Sherlock Holmes would be proud of, and partly what is modern science and the kind of tools we can bring to bear, the fantastic set of tools that you might see on a program like CSI. I say that advisedly because I think fantastic is the right word. Perhaps I should say the marvelous set of tools that we can, we can employ. Um, I'll tell you more about the technologies later, and I'll give you a few examples of that. I actually want to start with the deductive reasoning. Now, you might have been a bit puzzled by the title tonight. It was intended to give you a clue. Um, I, I will confess that my mind works in straight lines, and so in the whole of my life, I have never once solved a crossword clue. This isn't true of the whole family, however. We, we have members of the family who have corkscrew minds and who are able to get off and into, into crosswords clues. And when in doubt, you always have to phone your mum. So I phoned up my mum and I said, how do I describe a crossword clue uh, in this way? And she told me that mixed up is a flag in crossword clues for anagrams. So I don't know how many of you got this, but the clue is that an anagram of colorist is cortisol. Did anybody get that? I should have asked you first. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you might have been put off. You might have been put off because the very nice people who organized the Medical Detective Series and put it up on the website clearly thought that not only can I not solve crossword clues, but also I can't spell. <laughs> so they, they first of all advertised this as colorist with its UK spelling um, rather than the American spelling that I had deliberately used. So that might have put you off. Anyway, I'll tell you more about cortisol as a link between stress and cardiovascular disease. That's the topic tonight. So what is cortisol? Cortisol is a steroid hormone. It's a stress hormone. It responds uh, to stressful stimuli. Now, normally, it comes from the adrenal glands under the control of what is called the hypothalamus, a part of the brain, and the pituitary that releases a hormone called ACTH that stimulates the adrenals to produce cortisol. There are the adrenals sitting here above the two kidneys. Um, and together, that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is called the HPA axis, and I'll use that term quite a lot this evening. And the HPA axis is, is like a sensor for your external environment. It responds to a number of external stimuli. It watches the clock, so it's high when you first wake up in the morning, in order to prepare you, if you like, for the stresses of getting yourself together in the morning and getting going. Looking around the room, I'd imagine some people have a better causal response than others in the morning, and I think that's probably age-related. Um, it also responds to other stressors. So, for example, if you get injured, that's a picture of a, of a, a cell, a macrophage, that uh, uh, responds to inflammation. If you get an injury or an infection, um, particularly a severe infection like pneumonia, for example, then your HPA axis is activated and cortisol levels are high. Similarly, if you're psychologically stressed, although a series of experiments done by our good friends in Germany have demonstrated that it's only a particular kind of psychological stress that stimulates cortisol. You have to actually be humiliated to uh, generate a cortisol response, um, which is interesting itself and might ring a bell with you because maybe the guy at the end of that megaphone, the guy who's on the bottom of the heap in the, in the socioeconomic terms and in the civil service, is actually to a certain extent in that position of humiliation, of loss of control of their, of their destiny and of their activity.
And we know that those people will have a higher cortisol. And it also responds to nutritional status. Under starvation, which is a major stress, of course, in our evolution, uh, then cortisol will respond. So the next question is why? Why do you get a, an elevated cortisol in response to all these stresses? And the answer is that cortisol has important effects in the adaptive response to stress. Some of them are homeostatic. That's to say they take a system that has been perturbed and they bring it back to normal, restoring homeostasis. That would, for example, apply to the anti-inflammatory effects of cortisol, of steroid hormones, because what they're doing is to switch off the inflammation, act as a break. Without that break, the inflammation wouldn't be restrained, would carry on, cause bystander damage, damage to tissues, and in fact, ultimately could kill you without adequate cortisol response. Other responses are allostatic, and what that term means is that you take a system that is perturbed under stress, and you adjust the settings of the system so they're more appropriate to deal with the stressor. And an example of that is the effects of cortisol on the brain. So cortisol actually prevents you from remembering. It suppresses memory. So that at times of stress, it's important to have an adequate cortisol response in order to stop you laying down awful memories of that stress. And it's thought that in post-traumatic stress disorder, you don't adequately suppress the memories and you get flashbacks. And cortisol is also important uh, in allostatic terms in adjusting fuel metabolism and making a whole series of adjustments that allow you to have fuel available to, to deal with the acute stressor that's present. So in the short term, it's not only useful, it's essential to have an HP axis response. The trouble is that if that response is maintained over the long term in a way that's no longer appropriate to the circumstances that you're in, if you get some chronic ongoing activation of the HPA axis and high cortisol levels, all of these adaptive responses become maladaptive. And that's very common in physiology. Whatever it is that you adjust, you may get a benefit, but there's often going to be a price to pay. What might be termed the allostatic load, the sum of all the adjustments that are made in response to cortisol that could be damaging and, and cause disease. And we know how damaging that is because we look after patients sometimes, not very many of them, who have tumors that are causing cortisol levels to be high. So they've then got high levels in the absence of a stressor. And what happens to them is that they get a whole host of clinical problems and, and complications. This lady has Cushing syndrome. I'll show you the happy ending to her story a little later on. But you can see that she clearly looks ill. And she has, interestingly, obesity associated with diabetes and hypertension and abnormal blood lipids. Uh, cholesterol in her blood, and it's been demonstrated that she probably has an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and indeed definitely has an increased risk of death. She also, by the by, loses her memory uh, and has alterations in her mood. So, that leads us to a hypothesis. All science should start with a hypothesis that you then want to test. And the hypothesis I'm going to just try and test for you this evening is that in the population in people in this room even, we vary in the activity of our HPA axis and in our cortisol levels. And those of us who've got activated HPA axis for various reasons will then be predisposed to developing features of the metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular risk, and will then be predisposed to developing cardiovascular disease. Well, where do I start in trying to persuade you of this? I've got limited time. I could probably stand here for a couple of hours taking through all the data very, in a very tedious way. So I really just need to give you a few flashes of examples to see if I can persuade you. 
Um, I'm going to start not with people who've got Cushing's because of tumours producing cortisol, because they're quite rare, actually. Uh, but much more common are people who have high levels of cortisol-like steroids in their blood because their doctor is giving them. Because, as you might recognize from what I've said, cortisol is a steroid that is anti-inflammatory. And you'll know that we use anti-inflammatory steroids all the time to treat asthma and eczema and inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis and you name it. And what we're doing when we give those drugs is we're copying cortisol. All those drugs work on the same receptor as cortisol. They're all copying the effect of cortisol, the steroid stress hormone. So we can look at people who are on these drugs and see if they develop cardiovascular disease to test our hypothesis. And that's just what we did. And we exploited some of the advantages we have in the Scottish uh, health system um, to do with the excellence of our record keeping and our record linkage here in Scotland. Because colleagues in Tayside at the University of Dundee, uh, who are really world leaders in this area, have generated a system called MEMO, or Medicines Monitoring, which allows them to link for all the individuals in the Tayside population, to link information about the drugs they receive through the NHS, because they're all recorded when they hand a prescri prescription into the chemist and that gets sent off to a central office, and link all that with information about what illnesses they have and why they die and why they're admitted to hospital and a whole series of different sources of information, all done in, on, on a computer. So that allowed us on a computer to test and examine what happened to 150,000 people over a period of four years, and we counted up the number of times they got a cardiovascular event, in other words, a heart attack or a stroke, for example, and we compared how many events there were in those who got steroid treatment, like cortisol, versus those who didn't. We got 14,500 events, and I'll translate these numbers to tell you that if you took 100 people and you followed them for 10 years, you'd expect 19 of them to get a cardiovascular event if they did not get treated with steroids. But if they were treated, that number would be 32, so a substantial increase. And we've done all sorts of statistical gymnastics that I'm not going to take you through now to, to explore that phenomenon. And what I can tell you as a summary is that the people who get the highest doses of steroids, by a long chalk, get the highest risk of cardiovascular disease. And it's approximately threefold elevated risk. So that's what happens if you give people steroid treatment. But my question was a little bit different. I said, what happens if their own steroids vary, if they have high cortisol levels? And so we've, more recently, we've been able to test that because we finally got together enough information to test that. And this was a little more tedious to generate, actually. We've done, tested that in two ways uh, which epidemiologists would recognize. Uh, one is a cross-sectional study. The other one is a prospective study. What a cross-sectional study does is it takes a group of people, it measures something, and it looks to see what is associated with what else at the time of the measurement. And what this, this graph shows, and I'll gloss over this rather, but what it shows is if you divide the population into those with low, medium, or high cortisol levels, it's the people with high cortisol levels who are most likely to have cardiovascular disease. Prospectively, what you do, as we've done recently in northern Sweden with colleagues there, is you take people like you, and you take a sample at baseline, and you follow you up for years and years. And you've not got the disease when you start, but you see whether the baseline measurement is a prediction of whether you subsequently get the disease. And we get a very similar effect. Here we've divided it for no particular good reason into quartiles. So we've got low, medium, high, and highest. And you can see that there's this dose-response relationship with the risk of cardiovascular disease. 
So I hope that I persuaded you that uh, elevated or activation of the HP axis predicts cardiovascular disease. Does it also predict the metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular risk factors? And the answer to that is yes, too, because we've done a whole series of studies to explore that and to see if people with the highest cortisol in this room would also have the highest blood sugar and the highest lipids and the highest blood pressure. And all of that turns out to be true. And here's just one example of that. So here, uh, the people with the highest cortisol are on the right. They've got the highest blood sugar measured before breakfast in blue here or measured after we give them a glucose drink in green. And we, I could show you this for blood pressure, etc., etc. I won't go through all of that. There was one little conundrum in these findings, um, which I'm going to be able to explain to you later, but the conundrum was that people who are obese do not have high cortisol levels. And just, I just want you just to remember that. The most obese people here don't have the higher cortisol levels. Um, and I'm going to give you an alternative explanation to how cortisol can contribute to obesity a little bit later on. I guess you're now beginning, I hope to follow me now, you're thinking, well, there are links here, that's fine, so we've got the basic facts together, but now the question is, why? And that's what people keep asking in science. Of course, you, you answer one hypothesis, and immediately there's 10 more questions to address. And so the obvious questions here was, why is it that high, that you would have elevated cortisol in association with these risk factors for cardiovascular disease? What is it about people that would drive that? So we've explored that in a number of ways. I'll take you through a few examples. The first and most obvious question, harking back to what we started with, is to ask if it's because the people with the higher cortisol are under the greatest stress. Obvious question, but quite difficult to answer. And what we ended up doing was to go and work with colleagues at UCL in London, who uh, Eric Brunner and colleagues, who are involved in the Whitehall studies. So we're going back to those original studies of civil servants ranked according to their socioeconomic status and their stress. And we compared those civil servants who by chance had metabolic syndrome with those who didn't. And we measured in purple the cortisol levels. We also measured their adrenaline levels. Adrenaline, of course, is another stress hormone that you'll be aware of, and that's in blue. And you can see, again, that the metabolic syndrome people have higher cortisol, and they also have higher adrenaline than the other people, the healthier people. The bottom graph, which I, I appreciate is complicated, is designed to show you that when we then adjust for the level of stress measured by what grade they're on in the civil service scale, or how many assets they've got, that means how rich they are, it's a polite way of saying it, um, or their perceptions of how stressed they are at work, or a combination of all of those. If we then look to see to what extent do these factors explain this difference between people with disease and without disease, or people with risk factors and without risk factors, what we find is that these factors explain a great deal of the elevation of adrenaline as a stress hormone. So we can explain that on the basis of the stress that these people are experiencing now. But they don't explain the difference in cortisol. So it isn't the stress right now, at least not as far as we can measure it, that is driving the elevated cortisol that's driving the cardiovascular risk. That was a surprise. The long and the short of the explanation for that is that it might be that it's not the stress now that matters, but it's the stress that's gone by that matters. And it's gone by for a long time, because I can take you back now as early as you can go in somebody's life and say, well, might it be that stressors that operate 
in utero, when you're a developing fetus in the womb, that determine your subsequent activation of the HP axis and your subsequent cardiovascular risk. I don't know if you'll know this, but babies who are born small, as they grow older, uh, are more at risk of all of these cardiovascular risk factors, and they're more at risk of developing heart disease and atherogenesis. That uh, headline in the evening news was from a paper we published in The Lancet in 1997, I think, where we showed we were one of the people who showed that relationship between small babies getting subsequent cardiovascular disease. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at animals in which there are the, the pups are delivered small, you, and you study them as they grow up, they develop diabetes and higher blood pressure. And they have higher levels of their stress steroids. So it was the same true in humans. And what this graph shows is that it is, if you look at humans across a whole range, so these are people in Australia and people in parts of England, and these are measurements made anything up to 70 years after birth weight was measured, what you find is there's an inverse association. So the low birth weight baby has a higher cortisol even 70 years later. And that's independent of all the other reasons why that might be, as far as we can tell. So we think that actually it's an early life stressor which explains, in part, the activation of your cortisol, why high cortisol is then present and is in some way explaining uh, the risks of cardiovascular disease. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to hesitate over the next, next slide because the next slide is going to tell you a bit more about how we've then explored the nitty-gritty, the detail of what's going on with the control of cortisol in individual people. The reason I hesitate is because the danger is I take you into the kind of territory where endocrinologists like me get terribly excited um, about all sorts of dynamic testing of this and that, and measurement of this and that, and actually you just think, well, that's really not very interesting. So I will deliberately try to give you a summary of this, but I do want to give you a flavor, particularly those of you who are younger who are thinking, you know, what, what's involved in actually starting to dissect these things out in detail? I want to give you a flavor of how we thought this through as, as a detective exercise. So we took the HP axis, and we took people with metabolic syndrome, and we started to take it to bits. We stimulated the adrenals with an injection of ACTH, and we found that their response was greater. So they've got beefier adrenals, if you like. That's okay, but it just tells you that their axis is activated, so it didn't get to the cause. More importantly, I think, we took people and we repeatedly measured their cortisol, and we found that although the healthier people, cortisol falls as you repeatedly measure it, presumably it becomes less stressful to have somebody like me coming at you with a needle every morning, you actually get used to it. But that habituation was impaired in the people with metabolic syndrome. So that suggests there's something about the way their brain is responding to regular repeated measurement that's different. And that's kind of pointing the, the finger of blame here at the central control of your cortisol levels as responsible for this. Then we tested a thing called negative feedback. What that means is that cortisol tells the brain when it's getting high in order to switch off the system. Or if it's too low, it tells the brain, I'm too low, turn, it, turn me on again. And we tested that negative feedback with a good old-fashioned test, sorry, ignore that, um, called the dexamethasone suppression test, where we mimic the effect of cortisol to try and switch off the axis. I, I'm, I'm in danger of getting into too much detail. I'll tell you that that was normal. So any conventional endocrinologist would say to me, well, okay, there's no problem with feedback. The great fun about research, though, is that you're entitled to challenge what the conventional textbook would tell you. The textbook says, right, you've tested it now, it's normal. And we didn't accept that, really. We went on a hunt 
For alternative explanations for activation of the axis due to central mechanisms, we found other steroids like corticosterone, which turn out to make a contribution to that feedback control. We found that other receptors besides the conventional cortisol receptor, which normally mediates that control, are involved in the negative feedback. So that if we blocked, forgive me, if we blocked in combination both of these receptors involved in feedback in a combined receptor antagonist stimulation of the HP axis or crash test, then we could uh, show that there were abnormalities of the control of the cortisol levels that live in the brain and that the normal suppression is impaired. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but I hope you've got a sense that it's a sequence of steps, taking small steps at a time and putting them together into the big picture that, that obviously allows you to draw these conclusions. Now, what is most exciting, I think, is that we now can call on much better and more exciting and broadly based technologies to start to get an even more detailed handle on what is going on that is disrupting the HP axis in people and causing higher cortisol levels. And we can do that because of the power of modern genetics. So we've known for an awfully long time that all of us carry tiny mutations or tiny variations in our genetic code. Um, and the typical ones affect just one nucleotide change, and many of them don't have any functional consequence, but some of them do. And these are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs. We've known that for a long time. But what's changed in the last decade is that one of the fruits of the Human Genome Project, the fact that we now know the code for the human genome, together with the technological advances that let us measure that code and read it out in individuals, means that we can now dissect out the pattern of genetics that is associated with, for example, your cortisol levels and get new clues into what's controlling the difference in cortisol in the population. The sorts of technologies are just fabulous. So here is, here is a chip in somebody's hand on which you can measure, and you'll just take my word for this, you can measure 750,000 SNPs. And then because you know the associations with a number of other SNPs in the population, you can then do what's called imputing, which means you can work out on a computer what the likelihood is of another one and a half million SNPs. So you end up with 2.2 million SNPs in your database for every individual in your population. Um, lots of studies have been done to link those SNPs with disease. So here are all your chromosomes, and each of these dots represents an area that's been identified as linked with a particular disease or a particular process like blood pressure or height or weight or whatever it might be. Um, that was up to date a year ago and therefore it's completely out of date now. This field is moving like you don't know what. Um, and those dots represent investigations of all these diseases and all these variables. So this is a fantastically expanding field. But what we've done is to apply this technology to cortisol. So we formed a thing called the Cortisol Network or CORNET uh, which has brought together a whole series of people working around the world, actually, in, in, in collecting cortisol information in different cohorts of people. We need large numbers to do this because the statistics are tough. Um, I don't think the details of that matter, but that, these are the populations we've gathered together. There's a total of some 20,000 people, well, actually 23,000 people involved in those studies. And this is the result. And what this shows is every dot is a SNP. So actually, although you can't see them all, there are 2.2 million SNPs, 2.2 million dots on that graph. Um, what's on the y-axis is the p-value, the probability of any one of those being associated with your cortisol level. 
This is a minus log to the 10 scale, so the mathematicians in the audience will work out that it's a trillion to one chance up here. If you've got a dot there at a trillion to one, then you're trillion to one on that that's associated with cortisol. Pretty good bet, really. Um, and so what you see is here there's a locus, a region of DNA, which is very tightly associated with your cortisol levels. And what we can do now that we know where that is, is we can investigate the genes in that region to hunt down how they contribute to cortisol and find entirely new genes contributing to the control of the HP axis and your blood cortisol levels. And also we can use those as markers so we can say, well, if you've got that genotype, you're somebody who's going to get the high cortisol, you're going to get the associations with high cortisol, and you can test, does that cause cardiovascular disease? And that's what we're setting about doing at, at, at the moment, or aiming to set about doing. That's the next step. Uh, I'm running short of time, so I maybe won't tell you too much, but I, I should mention that the colored dots are those which, when four of us who are professors in endocrinology in this university sat down in a room and generated a list of the genes that we thought would be associated with cortisol before we had any of this information, that's what they are. You will note how many of the colored dots are way below the line, which I, I'm afraid is a reflection of just how little you know until you've gone and done the experiment. But you'll also note that the, the, the dots that are very high are green. So we did actually have some, some reason to believe that they might be important. Okay, so I think I've got to the point, uh, as far as I want to go, in terms of the detective work around showing that cortisol matters in cardiovascular risk and in cardiovascular disease. I, I really hope I've persuaded you of that. Well, that's very nice for me, because now I can understand what's going on. Does it make a whit of difference to any of the patients? Well, it would do if, as a result of this research, we could identify new interventions, new things to do and to change that would exploit this new knowledge. Um, I think that I can illustrate to you the opportunity without yet being able to confirm that we can achieve this. The opportunity is clear from people who've got high cortisol levels in Cushing syndrome because it's curable. This lady had a tumor causing her high cortisol levels, and when it was removed, the happy ending is that she was normalized. That's a year later, her obesity has gone, her diabetes has gone, her hypertension, her high blood pressure has gone, and many years later, she lives an entirely healthy life. So could we achieve the same by reducing cortisol action in people with metabolic syndrome with cardiovascular risk to prevent cardiovascular disease? Well, you might think about starting to manipulate the HPA axis and blocking cortisol production. You might, but didn't I tell you that it was essential to survive a stressful illness, to overcome pneumonia, to do all that stuff? You know, the last thing in the world that you should let me do is go and block your HPA axis. The good news is, though, that along this way and, and in a kind of separate series of studies that I haven't t introduced to you yet, We've been investigating other things that influence cortisol, and, and what we've discovered is that we can influence cortisol not only by influencing the HP axis, but also we discovered that cortisol is made in other places, and by hitting that, we have an opportunity to influence cortisol action in the tissues without interfering with the stress response and the HP axis. And I'll show you what I mean. So we started working on enzymes called 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenases, that's a mouthful, 11-beta-HSDs. Uh, the first one that we worked on, curiously enough, was called the type 2 enzyme, 
and it is present in the kidney, and it inactivates cortisol, turning it into this stuff called cortisone. And don't be uh, disturbed by the nomenclature. That is an inactive steroid. Although colloquially you sometimes say cortisone when you mean cortisol, it's not the same. Um, and then later on, we started working on the, the sister enzyme, 11-beta-HSD type 1, which takes the inactive cortisone and in cells in a dish and in animal organs and in a variety of experiments, we found that what it does is it makes cortisol. And it does so in important tissues like the adipose tissue and the liver. So if there is an enzyme making cortisol in those tissues, Maybe you could inhibit that enzyme with a drug and lower the cortisol in those tissues without affecting the HPA axis and the stress response and thereby have a more targeted effect to reduce metabolic risk. That's the hypothesis. Now, again, I could show you lots and lots of data. What I've chosen to do is, is to show you a bit of data that maybe is a bit quirky, actually. I uh, don't know if this would be the right choice. But what I want to show to you is, is the extent to which that regeneration of cortisol in these other tissues is important. Because I think that might really be really striking. Now, therefore, what I want to show you is the rate of that red line reaction, the conversion of cortisone to cortisol. And you might say to me, OK, so show me the rate. Well, it's easier said than done. Measuring the rate of something isn't as straightforward as you might think. And I'm deliberately introducing this because I'm sure there'll be some people in this room who study algebra still. And you'll enjoy this. This slide shows tortoises on the top and hares on the bottom. Trust me, they're hares. I know they look like rabbits. They're hares. If you take the section in the middle and treat that like the blood, and you measure the concentration of tortoises and hares, you would tell me that there are six of each per volume that we've measured. So they're the same. But you know, for sure you know, that hares move much faster than tortoises. So they're not really the same. They're present in the same concentration. But the flux, the movement across the screen, is much faster for the hare. How could you measure that? That's what I want to measure in my enzyme rate. How could I measure it? Well, the answer is I have to take a hair and take a tortoise and paint it. Paint it red and drop them at a steady rate into that pool in the middle zone there. And when I do that, because the tortoises are moving slowly, there will be more tortoises remaining here for a longer period of time. I'm so sorry. And the number of tortoises appearing from left field here is relatively small, so they'll be less diluted by unpainted tortoises. Whereas the hairs are whizzing along, so they will have whizzed out and be diluted by lots of fresh hairs. And so the ratio of the painted to the unpainted will tell me how fast things are moving. Very simple. And the maths is simple too, which is why I'm really telling you about this. If I know how much of a painted material I'm infusing into the system, the rate of that, and I want to know the rate of appearance of the normal compound in the system. All I need to know is that the, this ratio, rate of appearance, RA over I, is the same as the ratio of green to pink dots. And then I can rearrange that equation with simple algebra. You remember algebra, folks. Flux Q is the same as rate of appearance, is the same as rate of disappearance, is equal to the infusion rate divided by the tracer tracy ratio. It's as simple as that. It's fantastic. Now you need to paint your molecule. I need to paint cortisol and paint cortisone, infuse them into the system, and I'll know how fast things are moving, right? Easy. Well, not so easy. The way we paint these molecules now is to use uh, uh, stable isotopes, to use heavy atoms. Typically, we use deuterium, so hydrogen plus one mass. 
So, and then we, we need to work with fantastic people. This is Ruth Andrew, who is a long-standing colleague of mine. We've got a fantastic working relationship. She is an excellent mass spectrometrist. So she can measure heavy labeled compounds and she can distinguish the red painted molecules from the normal ones. So we infused into people cortisone with deuteriums, heavy hydrogens, a couple of those to make it mass plus two, and cortisol with four of these to make it mass plus four. And without giving you too much detail, I'll tell you that this one is turned around by the enzyme so that when it comes back from the 11-beta-HSD1 enzyme, it no longer carries one of its deuteriums, so it's mass plus three. And the dilution of each of these, the ratio of each of these, gives us the rates of the enzyme's activities. Now, you've then got to do some fairly heroic stuff, or rather your volunteers have to agree to have some fairly heroic studies to work out the rates for individual organs. So up here are some of our fantastic volunteers who give of their time and of their discomfort. This chap we've turned into a pin cushion really because he's got a sample coming out of the uh, muscle of his forearm with a, a sample coming out of the vein there. He's got this sample coming out of his tummy where his adipose tissue is, the fat tissue, so we're measuring the vein coming out of his adipose tissue. And a different patient actually here. You can't really see it on this contrast, I don't think. Well, he's got a cannula in his hepatic vein, the vein coming out of his liver, and also in his portal vein, the vein that drains into the liver. Making those measurements, what we found is that those healthy young men lying there on the couch, their adrenal glands are producing about 45 to 70 nanomoles per minute. The number doesn't matter, but that's the number when you're just lying on the couch in, in the study facility. Amazingly, 11-beta-HSD2 is removing just as much, if not more, cortisol. And 11-beta-HSD1 is regenerating just as much. So the textbook will tell you that the source of cortisol in your blood is the adrenal gland on the HP axis. And I'm telling you that actually if you challenge that assumption, as you should always do, and you go and measure how much cortisol is produced in other tissues, it's more. Isn't that fantastic? So most of that's coming from the liver. Some of it's coming from the adipose tissue. We've then gone on to do similar studies where we've explored how that uh, other generation of cortisol is controlled. We've shown that just like the HPA axis, actually that generation of cortisol in other tissues is controlled by whether you've got inflammation in the tissues, by what the nutritional signals are to the tissues. That controls how much cortisol is being generated in those tissues. Really importantly, that enzyme is increased in obese people in the adipose tissue, making more cortisol in their fat. Now, I told you ages ago to remember that people who were obese didn't have high cortisol in their blood because their HP axis actually seems to compensate okay, but they do have it in their adipose tissue, in the fat, where it really matters because they've got this enzyme switched on, and that's the explanation for why cortisol is driving, to some extent, obesity and its associated complications. And of course, what that means is if you could inhibit that enzyme and block that contribution to cortisol, you wouldn't be interfering with the stress response, which is controlled by the HPA axis, but you might be able to lower cortisol levels in these key tissues and get a benefit. So finally, really, the final section is to tell you that we have taken that idea further forward. Um, we've constructed the team that is necessary to develop new drugs. And that's a big team, and it requires big bucks, actually. So Wellcome Trust have invested, over the years now, about uh, 7.5 million pounds in this program. And we've put together a whole series of a team, and that's brought us to a point over many years now where we now have this compound UE2343. 
It is, I'm sorry to say, veiled in secrecy in this picture. Um, it's, but that's it sitting in the way it fits into the active site of the enzyme using uh, X-ray crystallography and structural biology reconstructions. Um, when we give that compound, uh, we can show, for example, this is mass spectrometry tissue imaging, which shows how it goes into tissues. And simultaneously, we can measure in individual pixels of this picture, we can measure the steroid levels and hence the degree to which we're inhibiting the enzyme. When we give it to diabetic mice, we show that we can lower the sugar level. So this inhibitor, this drug works to lower uh, sugar in, in uh, animals with diabetes. Curiously, it also improves their memory, and that's why the Evening News got onto us again, or though it was the Daily Express, I think the Evening News did it too, um, because it also actually abolishes the memory-suppressing effects of steroids. And this has stimulated a lot of interest around the world, and in fact, there are 40 different companies who have developed 11-BTHSD1 inhibitors for various reasons, and one of them published this clinical trial in patients with diabetes showing that as the dose of drug increases for their 11-BTHSD1 inhibitor, so the blood sugar is brought down, and the cholesterol is brought down, and these patients lose weight and blood pressure comes down. So it works. So I'm adding to my hypothesis. I'm telling you that not only is there HP axis activation on the left of this slide, but there is regeneration of tissue, of cortisol in tissues that's just as important. And that, unlike the HP axis, is a target for drugs, and that can improve the cardiovascular risk. There's one final piece of the jigsaw that I think I'll take one minute or two minutes to tell you about. And that is to predict to what extent using these drugs is going to solve the original problem, which is the cardiovascular disease and the atheroma. And that's, the, that's a big, literally a million dollar question. Um, and we have tested that, but so far we've only tested it in animal models. So for example, this uh, shows using, uh, this is a Merck using their own 11-beta-HSD1 inhibitor. It shows that if you look at atheroma, plaques of furring of the arteries in the aorta of mice, uh, you can reduce the cholesterol content using an 11-beta-HSD1 inhibitor. You can measure plaques uh, according to the area, and we've studied mice in which we've removed 11-beta-HSD1. We've simply knocked out the gene, so they don't have any of the enzyme. And they have less uh, plaque development, so they're protected from furring of the arteries. Um, I don't know if this video is going to work. Hopefully that works for you. Yes. Uh, this is an imaging, a three-dimensional imaging, using a tool that was invented in Edinburgh called optical projection tomography, which reconstructs uh, uh, the lesion of the atheroma. And you can see as you work your way up, you actually can get a volumetric assessment of the, of the atheroma lesion. Do you see it there? Um, and so you can actually quantify the atheroma that way. And again, when we study mice in that way, we show a dramatic reduction in the burden of atheroma, the burden of the furring of the arteries in these mice without the 11-beta-HSD1 enzyme. Moreover, it turns out, somewhat to my surprise, that inhibiting this enzyme doesn't just prevent the development of the plaques and the furring of the arteries. It actually improves the outcome after the occlusion of the artery and the development of a heart attack. And I don't have time to go into this in detail, but essentially what we've done here is to show that after a heart attack, it's necessary to develop new vessels in a process called angiogenesis to get the oxygen back into the tissue and let the heart recover. And mice that lack 11-beta-HSD1 do better at regenerating those vessels than mice that have a normal enzyme activity because they've lost the suppression that is induced by steroids. 
And as a result, those mice do better from at the point of view of their cardiovascular uh, outcomes. This is an echocardiogram of a mouse. I'm sorry it's so fuzzy, but you can understand it's quite a small image that you're getting. But it's just like putting an ultrasound probe on the, on the surface of the chest and looking at a human heart and watching it contract. And you can see that this one after a heart attack is rather flap, flabby and doesn't contract. And what this shows is that if you lose the enzyme, you're protected from that damage. So you get a better outcome after, uh, after heart attack. Okay, I've used up my time. I hope I've persuaded you that by starting right from some deductive thinking about what might be the association between stress and cardiovascular disease and working out what hormones are involved and then taking it to bits and working out what the mechanisms are, you can then throw up opportunities like this enzyme LMBHSD1 that are susceptible to treatment and that's the sort of intervention and the justification for actually doing all this work. I hope I've shown you, and especially for those of you who are younger and looking forward to playing with these tools in your future careers, that there are lots of great tools to be had. What's common to them all is they all use computers to run them. They're all based on informatics. Our principal will be delighted to hear that as an informatician. Um, and the, the input to those is amazingly diverse from a whole range of different technologies that I've showed you tonight. But you can't throw out the deductive reasoning. And the, most, the main thing I want you to remember is that that's not one person, that's the team. That's the mixture of the people who can only think in straight lines and the people who've got the corkscrew minds. And it's the mixture of the people who know how to work a mass spec machine or who know how to infuse something. You've got to have everybody. And as a result, and so Tim introduced this by saying I had 35 students, I actually, yeah. There's an awful lot of people on that slide. These are the people, and I've probably missed some, who have contributed to this story. I'd love to go through them all in detail with you because to be honest, each of them could give just as good account of this as, as, as I can. Uh, but, but many very important collaborations and, and co-workers on that slide who I want to acknowledge. And also to recognize that we can't do this without funding. Uh, I would give you a rough guess that what I've shown you tonight has cost between 25 and 30 million pounds to deliver, roughly. And um, that's where the funding has come from and that remains extremely important even in these straightened financial times. And with that, I shall close. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. And I'll be happy to answer questions. Um, Professor Walker uh, has uh, kindly agreed to take a few questions. Uh, when you're putting your question, um, two things. Um, a, introduce yourself briefly, and B, ask a short question. Questions. So that's an excellent question. So there's no such thing as a safe drug. You know, all drugs will have their side effects, and it's always a balance of risk and benefit. So the sorts of risks we might imagine, that, and this is a rather technical answer, okay, but you might worry that, for example, if you hit an enzyme in an inflamed site, you might allow the inflammation to become more severe. So we've actually explored that possibility in some of the models that we've got, and, and it does happen, but it's quite a mild effect, and we don't think it's important enough to limit the use, but it might be important. And there's also some technical issues I might not go into in enormous detail, but for example, if you change that generation of cortisol, that contribution of the peripheral tissues to cortisol, then you create a kind of, you're kind of opening the 
the plug in the bath to let the cortisol flood out because you're not generating so much back into the bath. So you produce more and there's some consequence of that, you produce other steroids as well as you go along and they might be partly harmful. Again, it's a modest effect. So very good question and, and there are a few other things I could mention, but there are things you have to think about as you go along developing drugs, absolutely. Right. Next question. Oh, here's one. Use the microphone. Um, there are other hormones such as insulin which do have effects on the HPA axis. I mean, are there any particular foods which could affect uh, these wonderful drugs that you're um, looking at? And indeed, um, you know, what are, the, are these superfoods? Do, do they affect the? Yes. Um, so I, I, I think you, you started quite rightly by saying there are other hormone systems and, and we've been in, when I showed you evidence that for example the enzyme in fat is regulated by inflammation and by nutrition, what I'm really describing there is the results of a series of studies that have looked at mediators of inflammation, looked at insulin, looked at growth hormone, looked at all these other responders to your nutritional status. And what they tell us overall is they, they tell us that yes, certain diets will influence um, the, the enzyme activity and that we did a study with colleagues in Aberdeen who were studying people who used a weight loss diet that was either an Atkins style low carb diet or was a, a, a carb rich low fat diet and we found differences in enzyme activity according to the dietary content that these people were following over a period of about six weeks. More recently we've given people milkshakes during infusion of red painted tortoises and uh, and we've shown the effects acutely of different uh, constituents in the milkshake on the, on the enzyme activity. Um, so yes, it is important. I don't think that would necessarily influence the effect of the drug, which tries to take that whole variation out of the equation. What you're trying to do is just remove that system, get it out of the way, because it might be causing compensatory effects that you don't want. Good. No, there's a question up there. There's a microphone's coming Thank you very much for this uh, exciting lecture. My question is, do we know um, in people with cortisol deficiency whether they have, um, whether the cortisol deficiency is protective against the risk of heart disease, say Edison disease or yeah. other? No, and that's another excellent question. It's one that I was asked at my senior fellowship interview about 15 years ago, and I remember it vividly because I don't think I produced a very good answer. Um, but uh, the trouble, well, not the trouble, the good news for people with glucocorticoid insufficiency, with Addison's disease, for example, or pituitary disease, which is more common, is that when it's diagnosed, we treat it. We wouldn't dream of withholding steroids for any length of time to test the possibility that the deficiency is going to cause any damage. And what we find is those groups of people, people with pituitary disease or Addison's, actually do have a slightly increased risk of cardiovascular risk. We think that's because when we give the steroids back again, it's impossible to give just the right amount and we end up over-treating and we end, they end up actually with evidence of, if you like, Cushing's-like syndrome rather than the deficiency they started with. And that's something that requires better types of steroid treatment that we're, other companies are working on. Very good. And another, uh, there's a question there. Um, if it's proven that uh, premature babies are more likely to have the higher cortisol levels, then could it be used, the drugs be used as a preventative measure for the metabolic syndrome? Yeah. Yes, I, th I think that's probably is the answer. Um, 
that, that actually picks out one of the key challenges of, of if you're sitting in big pharma companies trying to work out how you're going to market your drugs. You need to be able to see what they call a line of sight in how you would get from the idea of how to use it to generate the evidence. You know, you formed a hypothesis, it's a very nice hypothesis. How could you generate the evidence and do the study that proved it was right? And the answer is that if you started to intervene for you know, a group of premature babies aged, I don't know, 15 or 20 or 30, and you waited till they all got enough of them got cardiovascular disease to tell if this was protective, I'm afraid you will have spent many billions by then and had to wait an awfully long time. And so companies can't see the line of sight for that sort of use. So I think it's a fantastic idea. I think you're absolutely right, and I suspect it will never happen. And then I think we have the last question here. Um, thanks very much. That was fascinating. Um, I just thought it seemed to be a wonderful example of research that combined laboratory work and, and bioinformatics work with, with working clinics with patients. And I wondered, you were talking about you know, the young people here, the young medics and the young scientists. Would you have any advice to them as to how they can bring together lab science and informatics work and clinical work to do wonderful studies like this? Yeah, well, th thank you for that. And um, I, I think that's a very important issue. I actually spend, wearing one of my other hats, I spend a lot of time um, involved in the supervision and, and mentorship and PhD selection for young clinicians who are deciding where their research direction is going to be. And I think what you have to tease out is where your aptitudes and strengths lie. So if you're somebody who is mathematically minded and who can uh, do informatics in a professional way and have that ambition, then go out and get a proper training in it and do it properly and thoroughly and be the expert in the team who can do that. If you're somebody whose natural instinct and by experimenting and trying different things, you find that the natural thing for you to do is to be on the laboratory bench and playing with a mass spec instrument or whatever it might be, then do that and be the expert in that. You can't cover all the bases. You should be an expert in one and then you have to have awareness of all the others so that you can coordinate and work with other people to deliver. I don't know if that's of any use, but that's, that's my general advice. Now it's a great pleasure to propose a vote of thanks. Um, Professor Walker gave us an absolutely brilliant lecture. I thought the, the, the logic of it and the accessibility of it were wonderful and the uh, uh, detective metaphor was, conti was continued uh, very nicely. And, uh, and in response to the last question he was saying, which I think is extremely good advice, and his, his picture with, of the multiple Sherlock Holmes gave us this, that, that nowadays important medical scientific work is done by teams. So the, so the issue is to be which, which member of the team might one be? Might, might one be the, the computer scientist or the experimentalist or the uh, person designing the apparatus or the, or the chemist? Um, and I think that, that was good advice. At the same time, not, notwithstanding that picture of the multiple Sherlock Holmes, uh, there does need to be a, a single strategic intelligence taking this research forward, making sure the 35 million is, is spent appropriately. And, and Professor Walker is that uh, strategic intelligence. So he's the big Sherlock Holmes uh, guiding all the specialized Sherlock Holmes onto their discoveries. So, um, it, after we've applauded him, do, do come and join us in the um, anatomy museum upstairs where uh, there will be drinks and where you can ask him individual questions if you wish. But before we do that, uh, please join me in thanking Professor Walker for an absolutely brilliant detective's lecture.
This production is brought to